When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm a man who probably belongs in a ward, Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my little co-host, the award-worthy, the man who defines excellence, Michael Walker. How are you, Walker? Thank you, everyone. Thank you. At this opportunity, I would like to thank my mom. Thanks, mom. (laughs) And with that, we're going to have to start the music to play him out. Such a shame. Well, this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to be talking about the Aurus. This is our as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. This is where we touch base on what we reviewed last year, roughly, kind of, sort of, almost, because time is an illusion and has no meaning. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then we're going to launch into our feature topic, which is going to be about awards. We have many thoughts. I have many thoughts, anyway. And we'll be discussing the topic of awards in the context of board games. Well, that's good, because I didn't write anything down. I was just going to wing it like I usually do. Well, Walker, what comes off the top of your head is still going to be vastly better than anything else that anyone could ever offer. So with that in mind, let us proceed via Eurus. Walker, what did we talk about last year? Last year, Mark, we played a fantastic game, the only pandemic in my mind that matters, and that's Pandemic Fall of Rome. It is by far the best pandemic and pretty well the only one that I would play at this moment. I do not understand your continued distaste for Vanilla Pandemic. I think once you get one expansion into Pandemic, namely On the Brink, the sheer variety and number of optional modules and the persistent strains and all those things make Pandemic an utter delight. I have no objections to other versions of Pandemic, with minor exceptions for perhaps the Cthulhu version, which doesn't do it for me, and I'm a little bit tired with the legacy ones. But I definitely agree with you that Pandemic Fall of Rome is a marvelous iteration. It was co-designed by Paolo Mori, who is definitely a favorite of this podcast, in conjunction with Matt Leacock, who is, of course, Mr. Pandemic. It's a beautiful, thematic, and compelling experience, and I think it is a marvelous, marvelous tweak on the Pandemic formula. I have played it several times since we reviewed it, in part because it is the favorite version of not just yourself, but some other people locally. Have you played it since we reviewed it? Well, I don't own it, so the only time I played it was with you, so about three or four times, I think. You are a parasitic like a lamprey walker. I, I live to give, Mark. That's not how parasites work. That's not that's in fact the opposite of how it works. You got it backwards. No, that's what that's what we that's how what we whisper in the ear of our hosts just to make them feel better, Mark. It's, <laughs> it's how it works. It's called symbi lying. 
So the, the great thing about Pandemic Fall of Rome and one of the reasons why it is so different from a lot of the other pandemics is that, well, to my mind, the, the key difference is that the cubes don't show up randomly like these little pointillistic outbreaks that just happen wherever. Instead, you have these barbarians who proceed along these not deterministic, but de but fixed paths. And so there's a sense of a front. There's a real sense of geography in a, in a real way that Fall of Rome has that the other pandemics don't. And as a result, it, it, it actually feels on the spectrum more kind of like uh, Troops on a Map game. Not, it doesn't, it is not a Troops on a Map game. It doesn't feel like that entirely, but it has a, a little bit of that flavor in terms of managing the geography. And that's what I think makes it so different and compelling. Yeah, you have like this leader and you pick up these troops and you go out and you like create these defensive fronts. And I think it, I really enjoy it. That is Pandemic Fall of Rome. That is what we talked about last year. And on the topic of games played, games we played last week, I got a chance to play Commands and Colors Napoleonics. This is one of my absolute favorite games. It's one of my top 20 games, and I almost never get a chance to play it for a variety of reasons. Number one, a lot of people I know do not enjoy the Commands and Colors series. You are not one of them, fortunately, but you vastly prefer Battle or Second Edition. And on the rare occasions when you and I have played commands and colors games you as well as my opponent for this time dr stallone there was a sort of uh, a tendency to drift back towards battle or second edition conventions which is the one outlier in the command and color series it's one of the ones that works very differently from all the others but my heart will always belong to the napoleonic wars in a very serious way it's what introduced me to historical wargaming it's what introduced me to miniatures wargaming and I absolutely adore the time period. And the Vassal module for Commands and Colors Napoleonics is amazing. So I got to try out one of the lesser-used armies, specifically the Prussians. And I have to say, this is the first time I played as the Prussians in Commands and Colors Napoleonics. And modeling the Prussians in Napoleonic Warfare is traditionally tricky. Because, like many of the Allied countries, they fought almost exclusively the French during this period. And modeling... The sort of stereotypical national advantages of the Prussian army is rough because they were known to be disciplined, but the morale was brittle and their infantry was stodgy and, and, and very behind the times, especially in a lot of the traditional scenarios like at Jena in 1806 or, or even later on. Anyway, I could go on and on about that, but I think that the commands and color system although highly abstracted and very, very light, does a reasonably good job. They have these things called iron will counters, and so there's this effectively asset that they have they can use to sop up flag results and so in certain places at certain times they can provide a very very stalwart defense but they can't over rely on that because then they're just going to get worn down it was a very nice scenario the scenario design and commands and colors can be a little bit variable but i absolutely adore the system the notion of combined arms the notion of specialized troops to do certain tasks that they that they excel in in some tasks and not others the slight sense of national advantages, again, very stereotypical, but very much par for the course in Napoleonic's games. I am a huge, huge fan of the Commands and Colors Napoleonic's. I do not get to play it enough. I have a very, very large collection that just gathers dust in my basement. But I am fortunate that Vassal gives me an outlet. So I had a blast with Commands and Colors Napoleonic's. It is probably my favorite of the Commands and Colors systems, largely due to my enthusiasm of the setting. And I highly recommend it for anyone who is looking for a light Napoleonic's war game. Nice. You and I got to play Kemet. We played it on Tabletop Simulator. It wasn't very much scripted, but then when, you know, games being games, Kemet, there's not much scripting to be done. There's no, like, end of round big cleanup. There's pretty well, you know, you move what you got and 
pretty well just some, you know, take your action counters off your little personal board every round. Other than that, that's pretty well all that could be scripted, and it take, it's so quickly doing it yourself, it really didn't need to be. The biggest challenge when playing Comet is just setting out all the power tiles, and the mod comes with the power tiles already set up, so you don't really need any scripting. So we tried to play with the most up-to-date rules, I think. 1.5, yeah. Yeah, it sort of gave me this... Thinking back to, you know, Warhammer, it's like, you know, remembering old rules, not realizing, you know, what version we're playing, flip-flopping between stuff, not really knowing. I shouldn't say, that makes it sound more confusing than it was. It's just one of these things where you're just not sure, you know, things work the way you thought they did and trying to figure out what's what. But it was still Kemet, was still fantastic. But when I was thinking about it, I think I'm going to say Kemet is very much like if you've never played Kemet but you've played Game of Thrones the board game I'm feeling that they're very similar they both come with these battle cards that once you go through them you get them all back and it makes combat sort of semi predetermined right you know what your your opponents played you know what they can play so you sort it's a little bit deterministic but you can sort of like faint faint it out and you know give away cards you don't really need or give away battles you're you're striving towards well it's only nine victory points now in Kemet but you're at the end you're both striving for 10 victory points in Game of Thrones you needed 10 castles in Kemet you just need 10 victory points and I think the biggest similarity is you know the last sort of turn where you're sort of jockeying for those last few points in Game of Thrones you you know you try you want to definitely get a bunch at the very end so you know no one will pick on you you've got limited move actions in both games so you're trying to keep them to the very end and use those vital last two moves in order to get you know those last few points you need and hope no one can stop you much as i hate to disagree with you walker i don't think the commit and game of thrones have much in similar at all yes the combat resolution mechanism bears some passing similarities in that yes you both have a limited pool of cards that you cycle through you sock one down and it's revealed but other than that, the key reason why Game of Thrones is, in fact, an object lesson about how to do troops on a map games poorly in the face of Kemet doing it well is the stodgy geography, the inability to mess with any, with everybody, the inability to dynamically move, tra uh, traverse across large portions of the map. So as a result, you get these entrenched battle lines where A wants to fight B but can't because of the, the board position. That doesn't apply in Kemet. And furthermore, in Game of Thrones, you're incentivized to hold dirt. You're incentivized to turtle. You're incentivized to go grab a castle and sit on the thing. Whereas in Kemet, that is not how things work. You're not incentivized to turtle, and even if you wanted to, you couldn't. On top of the fact that Kemet is a brisk-moving, pleasant experience, and Game of Thrones is a torture that I would inflict on my worst enemies. But setting all that aside, returning back to your comments about 1.5, I think that they did an admirable job trying to address some of the problems, but I, I agree with you with your implied critique that I think the cure might be worse than the disease. All three of us were experienced Kemet players when we played, and we came to the conclusion that we probably wouldn't play with 1.5 rules again. Certainly now the whole kit and caboodle. The new turn order rules are nice, the new game-ending conditions are nice, those we'd easily backport, but the whole changes to the tiles and the changes to the Divine Intervention cards in particular did not please us. And the biggest problem was they introduced this new phase where just before a fight you can play Divine Intervention cards, Dr. Stallone said he felt that they, they felt like take that cards, and I, I kind of saw where he was coming from. But the, the biggest problem is you now have this very small subset of cards that you have to know independently of the iconography on the card that they can be played at this specific new phase. And that is the kind of upgrade that just rubs me the wrong way. One where 
the graphics on the card, they're trying to accommodate, they're trying to be consistent with the iconography there, but there's this additional information that you have to either know or you just have to look up every card and, as you say, effectively relearn the game. That part I found tedious and unpleasant. I, like you, enjoy Kemet, but not in the 1.5 rule set. Agreed. Moving on, I got to play Twilight Struggle again, and I am really coming to appreciate that Twilight Struggle is exactly the kind of satire that I like. I've come to the conclusion that Twilight Struggle is effectively satire. I've been commenting for years that I love how it is open about the fact that it internalizes theories of geopolitics that are manifestly false, namely containment and the domino theory. But on top of that, there's just so many cards in the game, like Duck and Cover, like How I Learned to Stop Worrying, like a whole bunch of other cards that really seek to emphasize that I think that this is just that the Twilight Struggle is an elaborate satire of a lot of Cold War ideology. And... I really appreciate that because I think vastly too many war games, especially consoms that cover things in the 20th century, just do so in a po-faced, uncritical way that seek to just levy all the standard stereotypes and neocon revisionist history that they come to, that they've kind of inherit. I mean, the worst example of this, I think, is the game Labyrinth, the War on Terror, which just swallows wholesale the notion that the only way to contain terrorism in the world was to invade Iraq for no bloody reason. But anyway, setting all that aside, I could talk about politics all day, but Twilight Struggle definitely has a sense of humor about all this. The nuclear gamesmanship, the specific cards, the overall doctrine, it really does kind of skewer and satire the power politics of the period, which I think is great because, let's be frank, a lot of it was absurd. In very much the same way that Napoleonic warfare was kind of sort of absurd. I don't mean to minimize the suffering and death that was involved in a lot of these conflicts. And I don't mean to minimize the fact that the Soviet Union, in many ways, was an evil that needed to be confront- confronted. But let's be frank. There was a lot of crazy things that happened. And many of them, especially now with the benefit of hindsight, were a little bit silly. And I appreciate it when a war game has a little bit of a sense of humor about it, as Twilight Struggle does. And that is on top of the fact that Twilight Struggle remains a brilliant two-player card-driven game. Having played Watergate and feeling that, you know, it it didn't really do the system's justice in terms of the ops versus event tension, it was great to go back to Twilight Struggle again where you really feel it. You've got this card, it'll give you three ops, but at the same time there's this really cool event, which isn't necessarily where you want to go, but it's really useful. And uh... However, I have to say that I feel a little bit betrayed, Walker. Would you like to hear my story of betrayal? Go ahead. Lay it on me, man. I, for a long time, have been singing the praises of Vassal. You may have noticed how I've been saying that Vassal is better than the Tabletop Simulator, definitely better than Tabletopia, better than the dedicated apps. I have been singing the praises. I've been defending it. For the first time, Vassal let me down. Oh, no. Vassal crashed. It It encountered an unrecoverable error... Fortunately, it was only in the first turn of our game of Twilight Struggle, so there wasn't a whole lot of sunk, uh, lost time there. I was unable to recover the game, and more more than than the embarrassment that I felt at having recommended this venue to my opponent, I felt betrayed. I felt deeply, deeply betrayed by the format that I've been defending. So we had to resort to the first-party Playdeck app to play Twilight Struggle, and I hate that thing. It's awful. I really don't like it. It's too slow. It wastes your time. You have to click on a card to see what it to see what it says, rather than just being able to see your hand and all the full graphics. I, ugh, I just don't like it. I don't like it. It has one feature that I appreciate. I will say, if you click on a region, it will give you the full scoring breakdown. It will tell you exactly how many points each person will will score if a certain region is scored. Whereas in Vassal, what you instead have is just a summary of whether one side dominates or whether one side controls or whether both sides have presence, etc. So that was at least a minor silver lining. But mostly, it, it, it's an emotional toll. 
of playing Twilight Struggle under those conditions. And uh, I'm starting to scrape together my own sense of self-worth after Vassal has knifed me in the back so deeply. Speaking of fantastic apps, won't you regale us with the story of the new Blood Rage app that just came out? Uh, uh, I played it once. It's terrible. (laughs) That's about all I've got to say. And that's that. And that's I that. wanted to play it, but then saw that it was twenty five ninety nine, and said, hmm, how about no? I got it effectively for free on top of the bonuses that I wanted to pledge for. I just wanted the new minis. I wanted the new stuff. I wanted the new blinged out components for Blood Rage, and that is why I pledged for Blood Rage Digital. And I, if anything, the Steam key that they sent me is is like a burden. I tried it. It's it's it, even after the recent hotfixes that they pushed through, it is tremendously resource intensive and very badly done. I think. But anyway, Twilight Struggle. Twilight Struggle is great. I recommend it. I am very much looking forward to Imperial Struggle, the follow up. Still love Vassal, even after it's been so cruel to me. Let's go on to an implementation that works well. And Tio Tawakin on Board Game Arena is fantastic. I love Teotihuacan, played many games on Board Game Arena because they flow so quickly. And even for new players, because when it's your turn, you're like it sort of like steps you through at the top. Almost every game it does this, right? It's like you are to do this, right? So there's no question on you sort of can figure out what you need to do and it, and it goes through everything. And they've already, you know, updated multiple times, you know, made things, you know, when you don't have a choice to do something like, you know, it went through all these steps where, you know, upgrade what upgrade your dice where you really didn't have a choice to you know it's like then you had to click on the die and it upgraded well now it just does it automatically because you really have no choice so it's made things even faster that being said when you play games over and over again and the turns go faster you start to see the mechanics sort of not i don't want to say more likely break down but you sort of get to look peek behind the curtain a little bit and this happened big time you know way back in the day one of the very first apps i think when a board game implementation came out it was memoir 44 so back in the olden days when i was young and and silly you know you could play about six games of memoir 44 in about an hour and then you sort of just saw that the the luck of the dice sort of dictated how your game went there, there's a little bit of strategy in Memoir 44. I don't want to take it away from people who play Memoir 44 all the time and say, oh, there's tons of strategy, you know, getting behind units and flanking them and bringing your troops up. I understand that there are tons of different strategies in Memoir 44. But when you sort of play a whole bunch of games like that, you can see your dice luck going one way or the other. And, it, and it's, and it makes you feel as though it's a very dice driven luck game. Where in two to walk in, when I taught people, I told them that it was like a temple building game. Just, you know, sort of focus on building the temple. You should have enough points to keep up with everybody and you'll have fun playing that. And now I'm just thinking it's, it's tracks. Like you say, tracks on tracks game. Make sure you're going up the tracks because if you're not going up the tracks, then you're losing the game. I have one very specific question about the implementation. Sorry to uh, <laughs> dial back from your excellent substantive criticism with a very, very minor implementation question. When you have to move one of your dice workers, does it show you in advance how much cacao you'd have to spend for various placement options? No, it does not. Uh, that's too bad. Because that would make me want to really want to try it as an as an implementation. Not that I object to playing Teotihuacan. I haven't played it nearly as much as you have, and so I'm still in a slightly more naive state. I mostly ignore the tracks because I don't enjoy tracks. I think it is a blight on modern Eurogame design. But thank you very much, Terra Mystica. It's all your fault. Actually, that's that's one thing I didn't mention about a great virtue of Clans of Caledonia over Terra Mystica and Gaia Project. No tracks. 
anyway. Tis true. Well, the, the, the cacao thing's not too bad. Like, once you get to know exactly how much it costs to go to a space, it's not overly complicated. You know, it's just, you know, how many different colors of dice are there and Look, blah, blah, blah. It's and when never you get... been complicated. But speaking personally, I always forget and I always get it wrong. That's all I have to say. I played it many times. The other rules make perfect sense to me. I could even probably explain the game right now, cold, even not having played it for a very long time. But the one thing that I never remember is how much it costs to put a worker out. And even when I do remember, I often get it wrong. Yeah, and I had an interesting game. I think I played, I think it was my one of my highest scoring games. And what you do in Kakao is you're, you're moving these dice around a board and sort of like a rondelle action selection and they're upgrading and the, and the more they're upgraded the more powerful they are but when you go to a space you almost have to play a cacao cost unless there's no dice there at all and then in order to get cacao you go to a space that have a whole bunch of dice and you say okay instead of doing the action i'm going to collect cacao anyway long story short in this game where i think i scored the highest I ever have. I only collected cacao once in the entire game. Mm. And I thought that was just ridiculous. And, you know, it sort of makes you think, look at a game differently, like using your actions more optimally instead of, you know, wasting actions on getting cacao, just figuring out how not only can you get points, but how you can do multiple moves and do what you want without having to spend it or getting it from somewhere else. It was, it was a, it's interesting. This is what I'm talking about before when I say, you know, trying different strategies every time you play, just trying to, you know, tweak, you know, your gameplay slightly. Sometimes you just don't have that time advantage, right? You just want to sit and play the way, you know, you always do or the way you want to. And because, you know, you don't get a chance to play this game very often, but in this sort of, you know, platform where you can play very quickly, it's nice to try these little tweaky strategies. And that is Tio Tawakin and the designer is Danielle Tassini. That is a perfect segue, Walker. I couldn't have scripted it better myself. I got to play Gaslands Refueled, and one of the joys of a miniatures game is precisely being able to try out these different builds. I want to try a sponsor I've never tried before, a vehicle type I've never tried before, uh, an overall build strategy I've never tried before. And I played it on Vassal. I've actually been devoting a lot of effort to tweaking the Gaslands mod on Vassal. I've updated it to the Refueled rules. I've introduced a whole bunch of new functionality, and maybe someday I'll release it to the public. I'm not sure. It's not quite ready for primetime yet. But I I played with the Handwerker, and he built a very, very gimmicky list. I don't mean this as a pejorative. In miniatures games, sometimes you build a gimmicky list. Like, I want to try all ranged units and forget about melee, or I just want to build a, uh, put in a whole bunch of these weird units and try out this one tactic or rely exclusively on this one trick. And that's very much what he did. He fielded three buggies that were loaded to the gills with RC car bombs. These are little remote-controlled cars that your vehicle drops, and then you drive the remote-controlled vehicle, and then it explodes. The trick is, you want them to explode when they are far away from your vehicles and in the middle of your opponent's vehicles. And I knew very early on, when, especially when the, the, the RC cars kept getting dropped, I needed to prevent him from being able to do this. And so effectively what I did was I swarmed his zone. I sent out my sacrificial lands, and I caused the RC cars to blow up. And this led to, at the very end of the game, a chain reaction that involved the explosion of, I think it was six vehicles in succession. One one RC car blew up, which caused another RC car to blow up, which caused one of his cars to blow up, which caused another one of his cars to blow up, and one of my cars. Anyway, many, many, many blowings up. And I really enjoy being able to try these wacky kind of builds, either playing as them or playing against them. That's one of the pleasures of miniatures games, especially well-done miniatures games, where the build options are robust and substantive. 
and fun. And Gaslands absolutely has all of those things in spades. And being able to play a miniatures game digitally, this is, uh, to, to circle back to the topic we talked about a couple weeks ago, miniatures games or setup heavy games where a lot of the amount of time is just getting everything in place in situ, that's one of the only times where I start to really feel the benefit of a digital implementation. Again, I'm not going to be doing it going forward when I don't have to, if for no other reason than one thing I haven't been able to get into the Gaslands mod is I can't, I, I haven't been able to find any Mustang graphics to put in there. And why would you play Gaslands if you can't field a Mustang? Like, that just seems like a waste, a missed kind, opportunity. Kind of a pointless, if you think about it. Pointless is a strong word, but it's definitely not the ideal way to play, at least as far as I am concerned. Anyway, Gaslands Refueled is a fabulous miniatures game. It is probably one of my favorites now. And I was very, very pleased to be able to play it again on an implementation that is really pretty good. And it's a nice way to be able to try out wacky and off-the-wall builds, especially in a context where you don't have to worry about having the necessary miniatures or having the representative terrain or anything of the sort. And so that was my continuing experience with Gaslands. I do have a Gaslands story for this week. This caused the very first time I yelled at, at a television was a Gaslands related story. I'm watching a video that's talking about things that, you know, impacted our industry over the years. And they talked about how uh, X-Wing, you know, brought people into miniature gaming and, and, you know, boosted up all these retail stores and how disappointed they were that no other miniature game has implemented this template system. And I was like, Gaslands, you... Idiot! <laughs> X-Wing didn't even innovate the template system. They stole no, it no, wholesale. And so the <laughs> from the Wings of War series. Wow. Okay. Well, the Wings of War, that they used mo- mostly cards and sort of... Yes, the cards were templates. And they were very fiddly. And But anyway, yes. True enough. You and I got to play Maharaja. This is a very colorful, interesting Euro game. Very area control-ish. What I loved about it was the timing sort of because it gives you very different strategies in order to to get your numbers in particular cities either you're putting you know statues in there or your priest is in there or your shrines you know you're putting all these different things into the cities to try to give yourself area majority in there what triggers the end of the game are the statues so if you're using all these other tools to get area majority than someone else is mostly building statues and they're bringing upon the end of the game before you realize it's about to happen. But otherwise I thought it was fantastic. If you get a chance to, you know, pick up the rules and try this on tabletop simulator, I would definitely suggest it. So Maharaja is the redevelopment of a game that was published in 2004 called Maharaja Palace Building in India that was put up by Phalanx before Phalanx ceased publishing Euro games. This is by the, the venerable design team of Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer, who designed the Mask Trilogy, among many, many other seminal Euro games. And they've changed a number of the fundamental rules. So first of all, in the 2004 version, the, it was a straight race. The goal was to put out all of your palaces. And now the palace equivalents in the new Maharaja, as you say, are still the game end condition, but they're not normally nominally the victory condition. But in effect, they kind of are, because they seem to be by far the most remunerative in terms of victory points. But we've now proceeded to a victory point system. I think all that you're gaining by this change is two things. First of all, it allows for a series of sundry side actions and minor powers 
to allow you to trade in a dollar here for some for a point here or score a couple points over there, which again is dwarfed by the prospect of putting out these expensive buildings that will give you three points at the end of the game and will also contribute significantly to control of the cities, which gives you money over the course of the game and victory points at the end of the game as well. In the original version, these palaces, although very expensive in your victory condition, did not help generate much income. They were, in fact, very inefficient at generating income. Now, in the new version, they're great at everything. And I was playing the new version like I played the old version. Because of the three of us, I was the only one who had played the original version of, of Maharaja. And I was largely operating on, on kind of long-forgotten muscle memory, which was, okay, my goal is to put out these palaces as quickly as possible. And what I found was... In what used to be an incredibly money-tight game, where you had to scrape for every dollar to get these palaces out, I was being comparatively showered with money because these expensive palaces were generating lots of money for me. And so I, I felt that a lot of the tension just drain out of the game. This was not a tight race where I had to trade off winning the area majority contest to get money versus advancing my victory condition. Now it's just all the same. Just just pump out these palaces as quickly as you can and everything will be fine. It also felt a lot looser because in the original game there were seven rolls, only six with the uh, the basic rolls, but in the advanced rolls there are seven different rolls. And I remember there being intense jockeying for these rolls. Swapping rolls was very important and you needed to be the right roll at the right time. In the new version there are well over a dozen rolls and you play with a random subset of them every time. This is a way that they can, you know, redevelop and, and quote-unquote put new life into an old design. I was very excited when I saw that some of the design work for these new roles was going to be Danielle Tashini, again, one of our favorite Italian designers. But I was very unsatisfied with how they worked out in practice. We didn't really feel the need to change roles. We just worked with the roles we had, and it was fine. They gave a little bit of asymmetry, but it was it felt more like... A special power you cut at the, at the beginning of the game rather than something you constantly had to be jockeying and trading over. Now, I think this was just because of the mix of roles we had. It, different set of roles would probably have been a, a lot tighter. But I have to say that all the changes to me felt like steps backward. In particular, and this is something I'd very much like to stress, they took a game which was already somewhat, I don't want to say appropriative, but orientalist. A couple of German dudes being like, ooh, we'll set it in the exotic India, and the Maharaja will come and judge your palaces. Fine, whatever. I, I don't really get worked up about stuff like that, but it's already a little bit of, you know, we're, we're going to use this culture that's not our own as window dressing. And they decided to inject it with a whole bunch of religion for reasons passing understanding. Like, we commented on this as we were playing. Did this really need to be, instead of architects putting out palaces? Did this really, really need to change to be priests putting out temples to Ganesh? Like, was that what the game needed? Does this does this make it more plausible, more realistic, more compelling? No. If anything, it just trivializes religious practices of many hundreds of millions of people. So uh, that part I felt was borderline distasteful. I'm not going to get up in arms and, uh, about it, but I, 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 I didn't approve of the change. And honestly, all of those changes in conjunction with the fact that this game is on Kickstarter very briefly as of this recording, but it might, you might get a late pledge. It's being done by Cranio Creations, whose rolling disaster in publishing Barrage is still being felt by many, many backers. And so I cannot counsel that anyone give them any money outside of a retail context. And so all these things added together mean that this was a design that I was very, very excited to try and very, very keen to see the return of, but I'm probably not going to be getting in its new iteration. True, and like we talked about, if you already have an El Grande 
and you're enjoying it, or you have a Haunted Teutonica and you're enjoying it, it uses, you know, some of those same fundamentals, or maybe those two games don't do it for you. You see how good they are, but just the, the theme or, or particular parts don't like it. Then, you know, go and take a look at it. Maybe this particular implementation of those mechanics are something you'll enjoy. Maharaja. And those are the games we played last week. On to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, our favorite designer, Reiner Knizia, is bringing out a game called Whale Riders. Because he's doing something completely different. I couldn't, I had to reread it again just to make sure I got it right. Because he's never done this before. When it's a player's turn, they get two actions to do stuff. Mind This blown. is something that he's never done before. I know, right? Game design <laughs> turned on its head. <laughs> anyway, Whale Riders, it looks fantastic. It's Reiner Knizia. I know it will be great. The artwork looks fantastic. You you ride whales around and you sell stuff and collect stuff and and ride whales. Reiner Knizia, thank you. I've been in clearly a miniatures game frame of mind because there's some news in the miniatures game world, some of which I care about, some of which I don't care about. And that is that Infinity, my favorite skirmish miniatures game system, has a couple of new versions, one out already and one out to be soon. One of them is called Code 1. This is a very strange project. This is going to be a parallel basic introductory rule system with a subset of the rules and a subset of the available units using its own army building program that is going to be operating in parallel to the existing game line. This is kind of like, you know, basic D&D to advanced D&D, two incommensurate rule systems, although nominally they share some of the same architecture. And the idea here is to ease people into army building. You know, you buy the starter box and they have these things that they kind of call boosters that are not randomized at all, but it's just, you know, you have the base box. These are units that work well with the units you already have. And uh, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've read the rules. I haven't played Code 1, but I've read the rules for Code 1. And honestly, it doesn't really get rid of the most complicated stuff. The most complicated stuff in Infinity is already this notion of face-to-face roles, the timing involved in face-to-face roles, and things involving camouflage. And they didn't get rid of camouflage because you, you basically can't. I mean, getting rid of camouflage in Infinity would be a very, very strange uh, strange thing to do. And the, the only major rule systems that they got rid of that were complicated were the fire teams, which is fine. I mean, like, getting rid of fire teams is, it seems like an obvious way to make Infinity more approachable. But anyway, I, I don't know how successful this, this venture is going to be. I don't know how many people would be inclined to try Code 1 who wouldn't be inclined to try Infinity. And this is sort of a gentle, soft launch of Infinity 4th Edition, which is going to be coming out sometime soon. Infinity is currently in its 3rd Edition, and I just mentioned for context, because I'm about to segue into something about which I care very little, but is nonetheless very important, Infinity 3rd Edition was launched 6 years ago, and Infinity 4th Edition will be coming out sometime soon, and Corvus Belli never ever charges you for rules. All the rules documents are free, and all the unit information is free, and the army builder is free. I mention this because Warhammer 40k is going to be coming out with its ninth edition three years after they put out their eighth edition. So guess what? All those codices that you have that you had for all of, say, 18 months, you get to buy them again. Congratulations, everybody. Games Workshop loves you. I mean, exploits you. So I'm sure I I actually heard a, a, a podcast by Roby Jenkins, who does miniatures games news. And he's like, look, we can't avoid the elephant in the room. I'm sure you're all aware Warhammer 40k 9th edition is coming out. I'm like, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. So <laughs> I'm clearly out of the loop when it comes to such things. But for all of those that are curious, if, if those previous eight editions of Space Marines rolling 56 
six-sided dice didn't sell you, I'm sure the ninth edition is going to send you right in. Well, I've got two segues. I don't know what I've got a parallel rules and I've got a miniature, so I'll just do them both really quick. Fantasy Flight is coming out with the solo rules for X-Wing. Kind of interesting. I'd like to see how they do it. I want to read them, see how they do it. Seems kind of interesting. Secondly, as for parallel rule system, the Pokemon company International announced today that they're doing a Pokemon trading card game called Battle Academy, which is loosely based on their trading card uh, card game. So a two-player board game loosely based on the card game. It's Pokemon. People will love it. You heard it here first. I let you do one episode of Board Game Barrage, and you come back telling me about Pokemon. Uh, clearly, there's a connection. <laughs> it's weird, because I worked for Nintendo for four years. I was the official Pokemon Master of Canada, and you're the one now talking about Pokemon Battle Academy. This is, uh, this is weird. There you go. On the topic of cartoons for children, Masters of the Universe. He-Man was totally my jam when I was a child. I, I grew up poor, but I still had some He-Man action figures. I, I use the term action figure loosely because they weren't necessarily all that great with, say, posability or anything of the sort. But Cool Money or Not is going to be making a Masters of the Universe board game, and I have to confess, I am rarely moved by nostalgia, but I am vaguely curious what they're going to do with it. This is going to be des- co-designed by Michael Chennault. I think Michael Chennault is one of the most underrated board game designers in the industry. We're big fans of his work. And there's some possibility that this could be okay. There's an excellent possibility that this is going to be absolute dreck. But there's some possibility it might be kind of okay. So that is Masters of the Universe. Yeah, there's not much information on it, so I hacked their website, and I found out some, you know, intricate information that I can tell everybody. There's going to be a whole bunch of miniatures, <laughs> and you're going to be forming these pools of dice based on the abilities <laughs> of the hero characters. You heard it here first at So Very Wrong About Games. Walker, you're just a cynic. You clearly don't have any enthusiasm for board games. You clearly hate fun. <laughs> I hate them all. Yeah. No, I love them all. I really do. But someone has to say something, Mark. Last, two last things here. Very seldom do I see f- things on Facebook and think the world's not such a terrible place after all. So there is a D&D set of dice that have rubber ducks in the middle of them. So little yellow rubber ducks <laughs> forged in the center of these clear 20-sided, 10-sided dice. They're fantastic. It's called Lucky Ducks in a Row, the Rubber Ducky Dice Set. Go check it out. Oh, you're going to have to get some of that for the Hanverker. He loves he loves him some I know, rubber chickens. I, I, I'm like, I'm holding my hand back not to pledge for this. I have to get at least one <laughs> dice, I think. They are adorable and they're wonderful. And the last bit of odd, not shouldn't say odd news, but Board Game Geek is now selling actual games. We knew about this last week, but I think this sort of ties in with our topic this week. Very interesting stuff about how the number one source of board game information is now selling board games for a profit. Well, in context, I agree with you. It's a, a major change and worthy of discussion, but this isn't the first time they've done it. They've been selling games through the Geek Store for quite some time. Usually just a couple titles here and there, usually hard to find imports. But you're right, this is a significant change. Looking forward to some games coming out of GMT. I've talked before about uh, Versailles 1919. This is going to be co-designed by Mark Herman and Jeff Engelstein, a famed war game designer and a famed designer from a war game background. This kind of sort of, they say it's mechanically different from Churchill, which was also sort of a card-driven game about political summits. Churchill, I thought, was a great game, except for the fact that the victory conditions were incredibly stupid and made the game not work. 
And I'm hopeful that someone with the design pedigree of Jeff Engelstein might be able to get something vaguely similar, but more functional. Uh, Imperial Struggle, the follow-up to Twilight Struggle, is also in the process of being shipped. So those two were coming out soon. I'm very much looking forward to trying both of them. And there's also an announcement of a new game that's going to go up on P500. Although given its background, I think it's going to be on P500 for all five hot seconds before they get enough orders. And this is Border Reavers by Ed Beach. Ed Beach, the designer of Virgin Queen and Here I Stand. Two very, very interesting multiplayer card-driven war games. Border Reefers is going to be significantly simpler, uh, very much more towards GMT's pivot towards trying to offer more and more titles that are of appeal to crossover audiences. And I am looking forward to trying it. That is news out, coming out of GMT. And that is all the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the topic of the week, which is awards. What are they good for? Absolutely nothing. Now you're thinking of war, Walker. Very simple. I, I I realize that war is in the middle of the word, but it's different. Wait a second. Are we not? We're doing. What are we doing? A, a, oh, awards. Uh oh. Good Lord, Joe. I thought we're doing war game. I thought we're doing war games again. All right. <laughs> so I sense that you have grievances, Walker. Is this accurate? Do you have grievances? I know. I I don't. I don't per se. It's just. <laughs> that's a yes. I, that's a that's a hard think, yes. I think. The wards in our industry, I think, just need to be redefined in some circumstances and or people just need to understand, you know, what they are for. Because not only in our guild was there a huge thread about the Golden Geek Awards, but even on, you know, the main site, there was, you know, a 19-page thread on on people talking about the awards. We didn't want to talk about this in the immediate aftermath of the Golden Geeks, both because... There was a whole bunch of talk going on online. We wanted to, I wanted to see a little bit how that played out. And also in the context of our being honored with runner up in a golden geek, it would seem churlish to complain in the immediate aftermath of that. But, you know, give it a couple of weeks and now we can complain all we want. And now we sound like gentlemen, but exactly, you know, let, let's acknowledge the budgie in the room. And a lot of this is, is motivated by discussions around wingspan. Wingspan seems to be the flashpoint for a lot of this talk. And I just want to say before we move on to talking about awards more generally, I have to say that I am personally thrilled that finally in our industry, a game designed by a woman is getting lots and lots and lots of recognition, both domestically, internationally, commercially, and in terms of awards. I think that's fabulous, and I think it's hugely overdue. But I will admit, as a critic, I wish it were for a better game. <laughs> so I'm a little bit conflicted as far as that's concerned. For all the grief, like, it's just my whipping game of of the period like when i played the app and when i played the game i have tons of fun playing wingspan it is it it is a fun game but but is it the game of the year are there are there other games that came out last year that that we might feel that were better than it does it well, does it deserve okay. the recognition that it's getting okay well let's start with that then because honestly I always like to analogize our very, very small, very niche, very, in many ways, juvenile hobby to more established media and more established cultural artifacts, right? Movies, video games, books, music, stuff like that. How often is it, honestly, as a music fan or as a movie fan, can you look at the Grammys or look at the Academy Awards and say, yes, that movie was the best. It was my favorite movie of the last year. I can think of no more deserving movie. Speaking personally, that has never happened to me. I'm not a huge movie buff, but I do pay some attention to what gets awards. <laughs> so Agreed. The, so the question is, in, in, in this context, I, and I think you said it yourself, in the talking about Wingspan specifically, and we will, of course, generalize the topic in just a little moment, but talking about Wingspan specifically, is it degenerate? 
Is it bad? Is it problematic? Is it embarrassing? Does it show our hobby in a bad light? Is it is it an obvious ripoff of some other design? Like, is there anything seriously problematic about it winning any awards? I think the answer is clearly no. I think it's aggressively mediocre, but aggressive mediocrities often win a lot of awards. And so whether you agree with me and you think it's aggressively mediocre or you agree with you and you think that it's perfectly fine but not the best, then I, I, I don't – I've come to terms with the fact that I think it's a good representative of our hobby because it's a theme that is not overused. It's by someone who deserves recognition. And it's, it's, it's well done. It's functional. And so on that metric, I'm perfectly okay with our collective hobby coming together and reaching some kind of consensus, both with the People's Choice Awards and the Critical Awards, because I'll talk about the difference between those two things in a second, declaring that, you know, 2019 was the year of Wingspan. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I've already talked about this before. I'm perfectly happy. I feel as though when awards like this come out, it is sort of the one opportunity we have to break in, into what I call, or what people call the normie world, right? <laughs> you know, this is the game, this is the game that won, you know, game of the year. You know, this is what's going to be, uh, you know, in the newspaper or on the news or, you know, make it on, you know, the Huffington Post, you know, New York Times, whichever, you know, whatever, yeah, yeah. you know, this is the game. And I am perfectly happy with Wingspan being that representative. You know, it's, it's, it's a great theme. It's great for the family. Like they say, the parents will love it and it and it it plays well again it's churlish to complain too much since since how much we've benefited from you know the golden geeks in particular we've we've got a lot of new listeners as a result of the golden geeks we're very very thankful that that's happened and honestly if we were in a position to wield enough power i mean we effectively do an award show every year we don't call it an award show nobody cares and nobody you know puts an emblem on their box but if they did, we would still keep doing it and we would relish having that influence, right? We talk, we give a, a, a game, game of the year. We do our, our top 10 list at the end of the year. And if honestly, if our lists could move copies, if our judgment, if our imprimatur could help shift units, we'd probably like that. And so I can't blame uh, anybody for seeking to use that influence when they have it, even when their judgment isn't necessarily the same as as what I would choose. Now, all this being said, I'm wondering if now we close the window, now we're just in our community and we have arguably the most important and or only awards that are given to board games. There are tons. I have a whole list here. There's there's the Dice Tower Awards, Board Game Quest, American Tabletop. You know, there's there's all sorts of other ones, but but arguably this is the biggest one, I I feel. I strongly disagree, but go on. Is that justifiable to to the other games that are out there you know like saying it's the game of the year instead of calling it the most popular game of the year or or Mm. you know i mean like redefining it a different way sure well uh, yeah so the golden geek awards are a straight popularity contest and one of the things that's been commented in the aftermath of of the golden geek because the primary controversy let's just contextualize this for those who haven't gone knee deep in all of those multi-page threads either in our guild or elsewhere the controversy isn't that wingspan won game of the year the controversy is that wingspan won nine categories some categories that people felt very strongly that it didn't belong there at all and so some people think the categories need to be more clearly defined. Some people think that games shouldn't be eligible for multiple categories, et cetera, et cetera. There's a whole bunch of proposals for reforms. What this is a function of pretty transparently is that the Golden Geek Awards are a straight popularity contest. 
There's no editorial control other than saying that it had to have been published within a certain period of time. And other than the fact that our category, Best Podcast, is the one that has the most editorial control because they render previous winners ineligible to win again. And as a result, in conjunction with their ranked voting method, it has a very, very strong bias to games that have received exposure. Because just to get into the weeds a tiny little bit, if there are 10 games that have been nominated for Game of the Year, and you've played six of them, and you hated one of them, you loathed it, you thought it was absolutely awful, the way the system works, it encourages you to give it the lowest rank of the ones you've played, and you leave all the ones you haven't played unranked. Well, guess what? Based on the algorithms and the voting metrics that are used by the Golden Geeks, that game you hated is given preference over all those other games you didn't play. And so, as a result, Wingspan, having gotten so much exposure, having been have, having such a large player base... It is helped by that in the popularity contest. So even people like you and me, who wouldn't necessarily rank it very highly, we would still rank it above the games that we hadn't played. And so these results are kind of expected. The only salient difference between this year, where Wingspan won like nine awards, and previous years where, say, Gloomhaven won something like four awards, is just that although Gloomhaven swept a lot of categories, Gloomhaven was a more expensive, limited production run that had some distribution problems early on. And yes, uh, Wingspan had some production issues early on as well, but it just clearly got much greater market penetration than something like Gloomhaven. People are predicting that next year, Frosthaven is going to win every single award. But again, I question how many people are actually going to get a chance to play it in, in, in any serious quantity by the time the award season comes out again. So what I'm saying is a lot of this is, is predictable. Yeah, and the other thing means, and, and the fact that I'm sure Board Game Geek is, is happy with it being a popularity contest. Sure. Because in the end, they have... They have their ad banners down the side, and like we said, now they have their their game store, and and much like all these other rides, like like the literary prize, the Academy Awards. At the end of the day, it's all about selling units. At the end of the day, right? They want to sell more books. They want to sell more DVDs. They need to sell more ad space and more games. Mm. Honestly, I don't know if that's true. It's an interesting perspective. I don't know one way or the other. I share your misgivings, though, about returning back to what you mentioned before about Board Game Geek as a platform for information, selling the things that they are platforming information about. Now they've always had this problem of ad revenue, but uh, you know the notion of people buying ads is a long-standing concern. You know, newspapers have been selling ad space for 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 centuries, and they nominally are supposed to be covering some of these people that they're selling ad space to. Mostly journalism has figured that out to the mo for the most part. You don't see major scandals about, you know, oh, the New York Times didn't want to cover DuPont because they sell ad space to DuPont or anything like that. It mostly works itself out. I don't know how I feel about game, about board game expanding its retail presence though. I, I share some of your misgivings, but I don't know if it's as transparent as all about moving cardboard. When I looked at, uh, these other, when I looked at these other words like the Dice Tower and, and these other places that did awards, because it was the same sort of thing. When you went to their list, underneath each game, there was a link that immediately took you to the store of their sponsor in order to buy that game. Yeah. Well, sponsorship in quote-unquote board game criticism is a general problem. And I'm not a fan of very close relationships between publishers and board game critics. So I don't feel good about that. Mostly the awards that I pay attention to 
and I don't pay a huge amount of attention, but I, I, I pay attention to the Spiel des Jahres. That I think is by far the biggest one because when the board, when board game geek gives the golden geek to wingspan, wingspan doesn't sell hundreds of thousands of board units. But when the SDJ gives the SDJ to a game, it sells hundreds of thousands of units. So I think in terms of influence, it definitely dwarfs all the rest. And a lot has been talked about the SDJ. I, I really, I think for me, the biggest problem, this is one of the areas where I think categorization really matters because there's been a lot of ink spilled about how the, the, the categories for the Golden Geek need to be reformed. And there's one thing that geeks love to argue about, and that is categorization and taxonomy. They love to try to come up with metrics like, okay, well, a strategy game necessarily has to have a weight of in excess of 3.5, and, the, and that, that will solve the problem. And then suddenly it's like, whatever. I don't really care. You need to decide what you're trying to do. And again, I looked at movies. Movies, for a long time, you, the producers would just decide what category was something was in. I'm, I recall the controversy a few years ago when The Martian was submitted to the Golden Globes as a comedy film. And so when it won Best Comedy, a musical or comedy, and Matt Damon won Best Actor in a Comedy, there was a, there was a whole bunch of spielkiss about that. Categorization is always going to be a, a thorny issue. But the, the only problem I have, getting back to the SDJ, is that I, I don't really get a sense of what it's trying to do anymore, and this is more of a naming issue. Right. For a long time, it was a hobbyist award. It gave a, it gave the, the SDJ to things like El Grande, to Tikal, Taurus, to Hanabi, even Dominion, games like that, where we're talking about games for people like you and me. And then it kind of shifted. And then it started to view itself slightly more as, a, as, as a, an explicitly more family-focused award. Not necessarily a strategy or gamer's game or whatever term you want to use that you could play with your family, but a much more accessible game. They would never in a million years consider a game like El Grande for the SDJ ever again, unless there was a massive sea change in what they do. Now we're talking about games like Codenames and Just One, which are fabulous games, but, you know, definitely have a different tenor. And I don't have any problem with that. I just wonder about their name, because they have three, three awards now. They have the award for children, children's games, which is a huge universe about which we know very little. We dabble in it and we enjoy children's games every now and then, but it's not really our primary draw. Then they have the Kennerspiel, and oh my goodness how people love to argue about what Kennerspiel really means. Reading the tea leaves and it's like, oh, is it for the connoisseur? Is it for the expert? Is it for the habituated? Is it for the strategy game or whatever? I don't care, but it's for their kind of sort of heavier game. But even then, the awards they've been giving out over the past few years have been relatively light. Family Affair, Wingspan, Quacks of Kledlingberg, Istanbul, Seven Wonders, you know, relatively accessible stuff. And the SDJ, which is Game of the Year Simpliciter, is, again, mostly family stuff. Anyway, all of this is to say that I think that people who are involved in giving these awards need to be as transparent as possible. And this is where I actually approve, circling back to the Golden Geeks, they're very transparent about it. This is a huge popularity contest. People suggest the nominees, people vote on what they want, that's it, we have nothing to do with it, hands off. And so the only people that you can criticize for declaring that Wingspan belongs in these nine different categories are the users. And that's fine, I have no problem criticizing users, but at least you don't have to worry about anybody push, putting their thumb on the scales. This is true. And I think I, the only thing I've the other thing else I have written here is like how awards mean different things to, you know what I mean, it's a totally, it means something else to the creators it means something different to the people that are giving the awards and then it's something completely different to, to you know the people that the viewers the consumers of these medias you know you know and how it how it's so different to these three different you know core groups that participate in these awards and and when someone wins an award when when it when it 
when you throw controversy into the system and you've won an award, it sort of pulls it away from from its meaning or or what it means to you, right? Yeah, that that's circling back to Elizabeth Hargrave. I have so much sympathy for her because what should be a crowning achievement should be a crowning triumph. Her game winning all of these awards is being soured by people complaining about the process, complaining endlessly about how, you know, this category doesn't make sense or people are idiots, blah, blah, blah. And it's desperately unfair that what ought to be a crowning achievement is undercut by a whole bunch of snarky comments, even by people like me who complain about the quality of the underlying game. But you're absolutely right. The, the, the big question about awards is who are these for? And awards need to kind of communicate what kind of community they think they're addressing themselves to. And there are a whole bunch of different awards that have popped up over the past few years uh, or have become more prominent recently. Things like the IGA, the International Gamers Awards, the uh, Hogo da Ano in Portugal, which is, for, for what it's worth, the one that I pay the most attention to. They've given their Game of the Year to a whole bunch of really stellar games in the past, like Imperial Agricola, Keyflower, Great Western Trail, Root. They, they've got a really, really, really good track record. But one thing, just in terms of who awards are for, I've, I really had to check myself when, when prepping for this topic. This, this topic led to a, a very serious kind of revelation about my own attitudes and about how sometimes I have impulses about being a gatekeeper. Because I was reading this list of just the, the list of games that, that have won awards. And again, code names pops up a lot. Just one pops up a lot over the, over the past year. And, I was getting all sort of, oh, well, you know, if you're, you're going to give an award to a party game, well, then you're not really a, a serious game award. And I'm like, wait a minute. Why are you being such a jerk? Why are you being such a gatekeeper? Would you rather, Mark, that these awards give awards to something like Coimbra? Just because Coimbra is like some sort of serious strategy game? I don't like Coimbra. Coimbra is dull and un uninteresting. Just One is awesome. Codenames is awesome. Why is it that one of my first reactions when looking through these things is to prefer bad advice to the hobbyist over good advice to a general audience? And so I have to say that I, I, I would like to apologize for a lot of my comments about the, 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 the Spiel des Jahres. I want them to be clear about what they think they're doing. But I don't think I get to be huffy about the fact that they've been awarding party games and accessible family games when they are a lot better than a lot of the so-called serious strategy games that have been winning, winning awards in other contexts. It's true. One that I found, too, that was good, I think it was Board Game Quest Awards. I think they had a good track record as well. Some standouts or... you'd just same the same sort of list that you had, you know, Root, Clans of Caledonia, Pandemic Legacy, Five Tribes, Nations. Sure. The ones that I find, and here I'm actually going to join you in your cynicism, I'm not too sure that at the end of the day, awards run by websites are just all about generating money or clicks. I mean, at the end of the day, all content creators want attention, right? That's that's definitely what they want. Well, well, just let me just let me just break in very quickly. Sure. Just, what, what I brought, what brought me. Towards that thing was like, you know, when you have things like Forbes magazine or Sports Illustrated, you know, when they have their man of the year or their person of the year time magazine, these are all to move issues off the shelf. People want to buy these when, you know, when eventually the lists become meaningless because you understand that's the only reason they're doing it is to sell those issues, right? Because it's just the same list over and over again. I don't, I'm having difficulty understanding what you're saying. Like we put out our podcast so in, in small part, with the hopes that as many people will be interested to consume what it is that we have to produce. Now, we don't monetize the way that, say, Time Magazine does. But the notion that content creators should make content that is going to be desirable for lots of people, I, can't, I fail to see how that's problematic in the slightest. I mean, I, th I feel as though the content's fairly hollow. 
simply making a list for the sake of making a list. Oh, I hear you. Yes, that that's fair. We have misgivings about top 10 lists and we don't, we try not to do them. But to a certain extent, it's the nature of the beast. I mean, awards kind of have to gravitate towards that because, again, whether you've got a jury or whether you've got uh, uh, some sort of, of, of just popular voting system, you're not going to be in a position to get consensus so that people can give in-depth critical analysis. It's, 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 like, it's just a way at the end of a year or end of a period to celebrate your hobby and try to publicize some things you deserve, that, that deserve publicity. And so, yeah, you're not going to get a whole lot of rigor, and that's fair. But I don't think that's a reason to dismiss them as necessarily being shallow and profit-driven. There's one set of awards that I pay precisely zero attention to, and those are con awards. You know, at the end of a convention, you give an award either at Origins or Gen Con or the UK Games Expo or whatever, back when we had conventions. You give an award to the best new game that's presented there. It's like, well, that's effectively giving marketing to more marketing. That's just giving an award to somebody who had the best booth, who had the best demo team, who had the best presentation. Now, sometimes you end up with some fascinating results. I just wanted to point out one. The UK Games Expo in 2018, they had for best strategy game, there was a, there's a judges category and then there's a people's choice category where, you know, one is obviously driven by an editorial board and the other is driven by the, 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 the attendees in general. And the winner for the, the judges award was civilization. Not Western Empires, not Mega Civ, but Civilization. And I assume it's in reference to the serviceable, albeit uninspired, Gibson's reprint at, at roughly that time. So we've got Civilization, Best of Con, and the People's Choice Award was Shadespire. And so <laughs> the two best games of the con, I am hard-pressed. Now, both excellent games. I adore both of these games, make no mistake. Odd bedfellows, I have to say. <laughs> Just an interesting set of results. They also have a, a category, and again, this is this this goes back to categories being tricky things to define, and I'm in favor of categories being at least transparent. They have a category for best American style game, which that year they gave to Forbidden Sky, which, yes, designed and published by Americans, absolutely, but certainly not what I understand to be an American style game. I don't know, maybe it's the light up rocket that really sold it. Leaning on these categories always <laughs> starts to get get tricky. To sum up, all that I'd say is the following. I find reading about awards somewhat useful because they're at least an indication of what the zeitgeist of our hobby is thinking. We don't have many opportunities for that, right? Like, again, if you're in movies or if you're in books, you've got bestseller lists, you've got the box office receipts, and you know that, that you know, Marvel's 20, uh, Marvel Avengers 27, this time with more punching, got $700 trillion. And, you know, that's an indication of something or other. We don't really have that as much in the games industry. So the awards are at least one indication that, oh, this is a thing that people are talking about. This is a thing that's going on. It's kind of like the hotness list blown up on steroids. Sometimes I'm worried that people just want to have their best game sort of justify their own feelings in a game. You know, if they like a game, they want everyone to like that game. They they don't understand why it's not number one. And But then again, sometimes it's nice that these mechanisms that not aren't normally showcased or when you know that a game you know, presented itself well, and if it's not recognized, you you know, you sort of want to wonder why. Yep, that's fair. I often have the grievance, you know, the sense of resentment. Why isn't this brilliant game appreciated by more people? But then again, as I've established, just in terms, especially in terms of preparing for this topic, I have a lot of grievances, and I really need to check some of my elitism, and I really need to be careful not to be a gatekeeper when I don't have to be. These things are all true. Remember, everyone has their own opinion on what's a great game and what's not a great game. What might be fun to you won't is not fun to others. It's so, so hard. Don't force your 
Don't force your terrible games onto other people. <laughs> with that excellent note, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. It is a multiple of five, Walker. We have a Patreon. I have to say, I am very proud of the output we've put out in terms of bonus content in the month of May. There have been a lot of bonus episodes and a lot of good stuff, and we are infinitely grateful to the people who support us on Patreon. We love you. You're amazing. You are amazing people. Thank you so much. This all helps us get better content out to you, so thank you so much for supporting us. I really, We really appreciate it. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. And if you liked it, tell a friend. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.